Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Kevin Frisch. He was recently the CMO at WAG, an on-demand dog walking platform. But he joined WAG from Uber, where he served as head of performance, marketing, and CRM for North America and was responsible for acquisition, engagement, and retention of drivers, couriers, riders, and eaters. He served as also the CMO of GSN Games and Snapfish, which was a division of HP. He uh, started his career actually coming out of MIT as a grad studying astrophysics that later switched to economics. And on the show today, we talk about not only his his background and his career and, and kind of what makes him unique coming from a financial perspective into marketing, but we talk about, I think, the largest ever fraud case between Uber and its suppliers of performance marketing advertising. And we kind of diagnose when did that when did that become real during the delete Uber debacle, if you will. And what was the trigger and how did they diagnose what was going on? And, and we also talk about some of the other measurement challenges along the way that he was able to come up with interesting solutions for. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kevin Frisch. Well, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's start with your, your background and where you started your career and any pivotal twist along the way, if you don't mind. 
Sure. I actually, uh, I, I uh, graduated college and um, uh, went into consulting because it seemed like uh, really fun as a, a 22-year-old to be able to tell these fancy executives what to do based <laughs> on exactly zero experience in an Excel spreadsheet I'd spent all night working on. And that was good. I did that for a few years. And then this whole dot-com thing was happening. And so in February of 2000, I moved out to California and joined a company that was doing video on a cell phone in 2000. So it was a bit ahead of its time, but interesting. I went through the whole, you know, dot com kind of basically bust at that company. And I ended up moving around a lot. Uh, it was a company called Packet Video. And uh, mm. I started out doing pricing, ended up in finance, and, and sort of moving between kind of the marketing, finance, analytics side. Mm. And then, yeah, and then the next job, uh, I went to Pro Flowers, and there I was the finance guy on the marketing team. You can imagine how popular I was basically going around. And this is before analytics was kind of cool. So I would just go around and like talk to market people like, that's not really incremental. You're spending more than you think. That was dumb. So I I made a lot of friends there. (laughs) But it was was also kind of me still trying to figure out, do I want marketing or do I kind of more like more analytics and finance? And uh, in terms of pivotal moments, I don't know that there's too many of them in my life, but one of them happened as it related to brand, a brand mm-hmm. project we had at Pro Flowers, you know, I was, again, doing analytics and finance, and we decided to do this big brand thing. And the CEO hired brand agency and all that kind of stuff. And I was very skeptical at first. And as the project progressed and I got more and more involved, I remained skeptical, to be clear. But I also realized how interesting and hard brand stuff was and how that's part of this marketing story. And I think that really sort of kind of set me a little more down the marketing path as opposed to the finance path, which up until then I'd been kind of straddling the two. Right. It's always interesting to, to, to see somebody transition from finance into marketing. (laughs) Um, We've had a number of them on the, on the show and uh, it's always interesting to see what that conversion cycle was like for each person. I don't know exactly when in your career after pro flowers, you ended up at, but Uber and, and then your most recent CMO role. But tell us a little bit about what happened next from Pro Flowers. Uh, well, so Pro Flowers, you know, I went to you know a bunch of kind of different B two C type companies. So mm-hmm. I went to uh, Snapfish, which was doing online photos, mm-hmm. and then Blue Nile. Spent some time at uh, GSN, which was doing uh, kind of mobile slot machines, uh, not for real money, for fake money, but that was still very interesting. And then from there to Uber, and I joined Uber in the summer of 2016. Mm. Delete Uber, everyone remembers, happened January 28th of 2017. So I had four months of peace. Two of those months, I was out on paternity leave. So it was really, I joined Uber, was there for two months, went out on paternity leave, came back a week before Delete Uber happened. So that's wow. um, that was a pretty interesting experience. And, uh, you know, Delete Uber happened. Then there was a Susan Fowler blog. Then there was, you know, TK kind of having that recorded conversation with the driver. And all those things followed in quick succession. So it was a pretty tough time to be there. I I remember when I first started Uber, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm an Uber. I'm so cool. And then kind of March, April, May, like when I'd make like team reservations at a restaurant, I would just give my name and not really say Uber, right? So it was a real, <laughs> it was a real kind of, you know, you look for those external markers as to how you actually feel. So it, it was definitely rough there. And, um, you know, a lot of things they said in the press, you know, were true. A lot of things they said were not true as well, because they always sort of kind of play it up. But it was really kind of uh, a problematic culture. 
Well, and I, I know there, I can't remember what magazine it was in recently, but there was a, a magazine, maybe a, it may have been a more of an online publication, but there was a kind of a sequencing, if you will, like a in-depth story of kind of the confrontation with TK and, uh, uh, actually ended up meeting uh, Jeff Jones recently, who was the president, I guess, during that period where there was a yes. confrontation. And so you were at the company at that same time. I mean, what what did it feel like inside with so much swirling around on the outside of the company at that point in time? Yeah, I do remember. I remember we were in the middle of a strategic planning session when the video of TK mm-hmm. um, kind of broke. And Jeff Jones like excused himself from the meeting right. and like went to deal with it, right? And so that was, you know, it was we were, we were all there. Look, I mean, it was interesting. There, there was definitely a group of folks at the company who had been there for a while, who were like, hey, you know, this is kind of the personality you need to have to sort of drive this amazing company and this amazing product. Mm-hmm. Talking about TK, and you know, I would argue it's true. Mm-hmm. Like you needed kind of someone who kind of was willing to just run through walls and, and do what you needed to. But as the company sort of matured, like mm. we didn't sort of manage to sort of make that transition to, okay, how do we 10,000 people, 20,000 people, we're no longer a little startup. We're now like the dominant player. We can't keep acting like we're a startup. And so there were almost two camps, those who were like, no, 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 we should keep doing what got us here. And others who were saying, hey, it's great that we had that to get us here but now we need to evolve. And you really kind of felt those tensions between those, these, those two groups. Now your role at Uber, it was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's head of performance marketing. Is that right? Yeah. So I had, um, I started out running performance marketing, which was uh, for the U S and Canada, which was, you know, responsible for sort of acquiring all the riders and drivers and actually drivers is, is the, the bigger challenge for Uber. Uh, if you've ever tried to get an Uber during rush hour, you, you probably know that. <laughs> and then over time, I was also responsible for uh, marketing for CRM and for analytics and for the insights group. Gotcha. Gotcha. And now in the news and maybe it's not in the large news cycles, oddly, but in the kind of circles that I follow, there's the fraud lawsuit between Uber and its uh, providers, I guess, you know, programmatic providers. Yeah, that actually relates funnily back to sort of the delete Uber moment. So it's, it's a bit of a long story, but it's a pretty interesting one. So delete Uber happens and all the politics around that are going on. And TK is trying to figure out how to best navigate this. And, and one of the things he decides to do is sort of kind of get off, uh, leave Trump's economic council that he was on, just to sort of like distance himself, be a little more neutral. And as all that was happening, our ads for writers in this case were showing up on a bright, the Breitbart site. Mm. And there was this company group called Sleeping Giants, which every time our ad would show up on Breitbart, they would tweet at Travis saying like, hey, why are you supporting this terrible site? And so Travis would call me or Kellen Kenny, my my manager, in sort of so many words, say, hey, what the hell are you guys doing? And I would go through these long explanations of like, well, it's not like we're buying ads on Breitbart. Uh, It's like, you know, display, you know, their networks and this. And I was like waving my hands all over the place. And it was like, yeah, okay, fine, just make sure it doesn't happen again. Three days later, another tweet from Sleeping Giants with another image of our ads on Breitbart. The phone calls start again, the yelling starts again. So I'm looking at these ads and I'm like, okay, figuring out which network is putting them on there. Hey, why are you not respecting our blacklist? It goes on for a while. 
a while, like a week and a half, right. and getting pelted. <laughs> and it felt, felt like four I'm years, sure. to be clear. I'm sure. <laughs> and um, eventually I said, look, any network that kind of has been kind of showing these ads on Breitbart, I'm just going to cut them off. So I turned off what amounted to about 10% of our ad spend on on the rider side and the total rider spend at the time was in the neighborhood of 150 million dollars a year so i turned off 10 percent. which by the way this was not super popular because remember delete uber had happened so we just lost a bunch of riders so then here i am turning off 10 percent of spend but anything to sort of stop travis from kind of going after me and kind of nothing really happened like (laughs) our number of riders didn't really you know new writers didn't really go down and i'm like oh that's kind of interesting other folks that come back oh my god that's so amazing uber is so cool yeah i knew we could do that i'm like no 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 you understand that doesn't actually that's not because we're cool that's just weird right right right? right. and so i was happy that you know it had an impact it so i started digging in and started sort of looking at okay let's really understand kind of what's going on here so i started kind of pulling our own kind of log files, like sort of asking kind of every single network, okay, tell me exactly kind of what app the person was in that they saw the ad that they clicked on, started getting these reports, our own analytics team, and started seeing things that just didn't make any sense. Like, oh, there's this app that has kind of a thousand MAUs. And in theory, we got 350,000 installs from them. That's probably a slight exaggeration, but there were things that were just not making sense. And so we kept peeling this back to understand what was going on. There were also other interesting things that happened where, for example, there was some stuff where someone would see an ad and they, in theory, would download and open the app within like two seconds, which is just right, not possible, right? Yeah. right? And so we you know, discovered that we had what was called attribution fraud. Mm. So normally when you think about fraud and ad fraud, you imagine that it's impression fraud where like someone you know there's bots sort of you know creating impressions or clicking on your ads and you're paying per impression or per click or you know they're saying they're showing your entire 15 second video and they're only showing mm-hmm. two seconds of it that that's kind of like fraud is and so but we weren't paying on clicks and anything like that we were playing basically on the first trip when an actual writer like swiped a credit card took a ride in a car like we knew these were actual humans so the normal sense of fraud wasn't really kind of applicable but what we had was attribution fraud where mm. basically ad networks were taking credit for installs that would have happened organically that would have happened anyway and they just sort of get inside that path and then sort of take credit so you know one example in the Google Play stores, these ad networks would create apps that would do things like, you know, monitor your battery power, help you make your battery last a little longer, whatever. These apps had root access to your phone. So mm-hmm. you're on your phone and you decide, oh, I'm going to download the Uber app because it's so great. You decide that on your own without seeing any ads. So you type in U-B-E-R into the Google Play store to find Uber. And as soon as you hit the letter R, this app that's in the background fires a click on your device. And, and basically sort of makes it look like you clicked on an ad. And then lo and behold, you downloaded the Uber app. Thanks, Ad Network raises its hand and says, hey, that download, hey, see, I have a click on that device. Now pay me, you know, $20. Wow. Right? Yeah. And that's just one of the sort of the, the many, many kind of just amazing kind of methods uh, that they have. And it's like, it's not like an accident. It's, it's highly intentional. 
And then they kind of spend a lot of time because they're generating all these fake clicks. They, they have to spend a lot of time figuring out how to sort of kind of hide them. Sort of, they basically look at all the apps out there and say, okay, well, we have these, you know, 1 billion clicks that, you know, most of them are fake. And so we're going to tell kind of Uber that, okay, there were 100,000 clicks in this app, 200,000 here. They just start making up where those things were and they don't do it that well sometimes. So you can be like, hey, wait a second, this app here only has, you know, 1,000 MAUs <laughs> and you're saying that drove 20,000 installs. Like that's, I mean, thank you for saying my creative is so good. But that seems a little unrealistic. I would expect like it to drive two, right? Right. And so as you start really pulling this apart and sort of finding what's going on, it can get pretty easy to see. But until you do that, if you're just relying on sort of the, the high level reporting or your agencies, you just don't catch it. And so, uh, you know, we ended up after a lot of back and forth internally, because remember, delete Uber had just happened. Right. Uh, so no one wanted to risk giving up riders and, you know, acquiring new riders. We turned off two thirds of our spend. So we turned off 100 million of annual spend out of the 150 and basically saw no change um, wow. in our number of rider app installs. What we saw is a lot of installs we thought had come in through paid channels suddenly came in through organic. Right. So you had a big flip flop there, but the total number didn't change. Right. Right. Wow. That's I see. $100 million out, <laughs> cut off, no change, limited change. The $50 million that was still at play, was that just you had whittled it down to you know what was actually working at that point? Uh, that curious. was the first cut. Okay. Because that was the stuff that was, I would say, obvious. Right. Then we started sort of being a little more surgical, and I think knocked out another $20 million of the remaining 50 So we ended wow. up about $30 million. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's insane in part because you think, I don't know, you just, you don't realize that there's bad people like that in the world, I guess, at that scale. I mean, that's a huge scale of just nefarious things at play. Yeah. I mean, the, well, a couple of funny things. First, saving a hundred and some odd million a year at Uber back in the, the heady days of 2017. Yeah. Actually, people didn't care that much about. <laughs> it was actually pretty funny. I, I think saving a hundred million right now, it would be like, oh my God, this is life changing. Right. At the time, I was like, okay, that's cool. So how are we reinvesting that money to grow faster? Right. right. There right. wasn't at the time at Uber, and again, this is why it made it a little harder. There, there was no desire to really kind of save money. It was more like, hey, spend your budget, spend to budget, just always spend to budget. So it's a very different culture and sort of like business attitude than what we're seeing right now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, if 
if you're talking to other um other marketers that might be in a similar position and don't realize it or, or just aren't paying attention at this point in time like what actions would you say they should be doing right now well i mean i would start by assuming that like half of what's out there on the display channels is fraud like assume that and then ask yourself are you being smart enough to sort of get rid of it right but think half of it is fraud i, I think there's estimates that that say it's it's even higher than that and i would say the main thing you have to do is sort of keep an eye out for that fraud yourself mm-hmm. you know your agency won't do it your the mmps don't do it and sadly even the folks on your team won't do it because you know well agencies and mmps they get paid on volume of spend so again these are not bad people but the incentives are just not the incentives are not really there and for all of us you know overcoming those basic human incentives is pretty hard and i would say even your team because remember getting a sort of a true app install like when i do it legitimately costs me 40 dollars, and i find the source that's only costing me five right like and now i'm beating all my numbers the first thing i'm going to do as a director of acquisition is not say hey wait a second maybe i'm not really crushing my numbers maybe there's something going on here no that that's that's not how humans work they're like oh my god i'm killing it what else can i do right right and so like there has to be someone who doesn't have a stake in kind of this spend going away and kind of your cost per you know acquired customer going up because remember fraudulent new customers are much cheaper than ones you actually incrementally acquire yeah yeah would you still use programmatic spend today you know i would not do display mm-hmm. without a pretty sizable or pretty decent analytics team that could be processing all the information that's coming in and really looking at it Right. Right. So I, I think, again, there are good players out there. Mm-hmm. But the problem is if you kind of don't have the tools and again, it's you can't just sort of outsource and be like, oh, wait, here's an anti-fraud tool. Let me just run it through that. These fraud guys, it, like they're constantly moving. They're constantly evolving. They're really smart. This is billions and billions of dollars they're making. Right. So you have to always be on it being like, OK, let me poke here. Wait a second. That looks so weird. Let me dig in. Hey, I want to see that file. Wait, you don't give it to me? Fine. I'm cutting you off. Right. You have to be very on it. You can't just be like, oh, I'm going to sort of hire an auditor or I'm going to you know, bring on a tool. Like you have to be super engaged and you need a decent sized number of team and tools to do that. Right. Well, and I, I think there's a ton of marketers today that just on the surface, they are taking their agency's word that they've got fraud detection, whatever that means, <laughs> or they've, they're buying a fraud detection tool. But I don't think any fraud detection tool would catch what you've just described. No. And even if it catched what, if it caught what I described, it won't catch what the next, next evolution of right. fraud is going to be. Right. It's <laughs> right. kind of those things are always looking backward and you have to be on it. And you know, age, I mean, fraud detection tools at least are claiming to, but agents aren't experts in fraud. They're right. experts in buying, right? right? And this is a very technical kind of difficult thing to do. Are there any, I don't know, advice you'd give in terms of picking better partners or people to help you along the way? Yeah, I mean, there there are some folks. And again, like, I know I, uh, Dr. Fu was on your show yeah. uh, at some point, yeah. and he's someone I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for. And and again, what he does, you know, he has a few tools, but mostly he does. He's like, let me come in and like just look through what's going on, right? He's right. putting in the hours to do that. And again, that is something you can sort of hire for and bring on external to do, but you just can't. You can never put it on autopilot. Right. You can never put it on right. autopilot. Right. Okay. Well, um, 
Now I know let's let's transition a little bit from fraud. I, it was not your only measurement challenge at Uber. You told me about in a prior conversation about devising a measurement approach for the hello, my name is and I can't ever remember if it's Dara or Dara. Um, Dara. Dara. So hello, my name is Dara campaign, which was really a brand reputation campaign after all of the tumultuous time. Right, the new CEO comes in and tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do when you were you know coming out with that campaign. Yeah, so that campaign launched. Dara had been at Uber for about nine months, and we were sort of waiting for the time to sort of kind of do like the name of the campaign was moving forward. And, you know, for a while it was called Fresh Start, right? And it was it was like you know what's the right time to say, hey, kind of we understand these mistakes we've made, and how do we move forward? And there was a lot of debate. It's like, do we acknowledge the mistakes? Do we refer to them? Do we just talk about moving forward? Right, the, the usual stuff. It was actually funny. It came out. Our ad on that is just a funny came out at the same time Facebook was having its own little reputational <laughs> ads, and then also Wells Fargo, I think. Right. And there yes. was this one basketball game, like uh, I don't remember which one it was, where like the three ads showed back to back, like literally kind of in the same segment. We're like, oh, okay, well, so we have that. But anyway, so so we were doing this ad, and again, Uber is a very performance analytics driven culture. And we're basically trying to do this brand-ish type campaign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm spending all this money. I think it was $150 million or so, all told, it ended up being. So it's a decent amount. So it's like, well, how do we kind of measure this and stay true to sort of the Uber, the Uber roots of measuring everything you do? And when you think about TV, there's, you know, a couple ways to measure it. Uh, the first, and I would say the most common, is what I call the squint test, where you kind of look at some trend line. <laughs> whether it's of sentiment or of growth or of whatever it is. Right. And then there's a little vertical dotted line where your campaign's starting. You say, you see, you see it like, well, ignore the fact that it first went down. That's because seasonal issues. But then it picked up. No, no, it didn't pick up because seasonal issues. No, no. And you sort of squint to the graph and you sort of make a point like, here's what it did, right? <laughs> But, you know, uh, obviously it's not my favorite. Fair, somewhat better is sort of, you know, testing control cities. That's mm -hmm. the, the kind of main way you do it where you kind of find a bunch of cities test in them and not in others. And that kind of works well. But especially for Uber, you have a lot of noise in cities because each of the cities is very different. There's, you know, regulatory issues going on. You know, there's a strike in Los Angeles like that. So mm -hmm. it's very hard to sort of have clean testing control cities because the cities move very independently from each other based on local conditions. So we wanted to try and do it a better way. And so we ended up using addressable TV. And I'll just explain what that is. It's a little bit creepy, but not too creepy given everything else that's going on. You know, everyone has a cable box or anyone who has cable TV has a cable box. And about 40% of the cable boxes are such that to various extents, you can target a particular ad at a particular household and know whether that household had the TV on and presumably saw that ad. Hmm. Right. So instead of just, you know, buying sort of demographics and sort of getting general views for how many people watched a particular show, you can basically say, okay, I know this many households saw my ad and here was kind of the frequency distribution. And you can know it exactly essentially at the household level. And so we wanted to use this and say, okay, so for the Dara campaign, for the moving forward campaign, we had big had a big national TV buy. And then we looked at folks, whether they were prospects or active customers or had churned customers, and which ones of them had kind of a cable set-top box that was addressable TV accessible, that was, and sort of did a split test among those. So half of them 
got a bunch of additional ad viewings. We you know sort of showed them the ad you know via their you know addressable TV, and mm-hmm. half didn't. So you had like a true kind of random split test on getting a bunch more exposures to these commercials. Mm-hmm. And that's it's nice. And so, like, National got basically a 16x frequency on the ads, and folks that were kind of in this addressable test cell got you know 30 to 40x, right? So right. sort of a big lift. Yeah. And it's a true random split. And the other thing is, you're not relying on did you see our ad to sort of track things. You know they saw the ad, so then you can just look at their behavior. Right. On the con side, though, it was technically complex addressable tv and again this was two years ago it's probably gotten better they were actually fairly good at reporting kind of what happened right but they weren't really set up for us to say hey here's you know and it's what it ended up being here's five million names mm-hmm. we want you to show them these ads at this frequency they were good at reporting but they weren't so good at here's a list we want you to show them this ad right the, the technology wasn't quite there yet but still kind of you know, worked reasonably well. Uh, we relied heavily on a partner, 605. They're like a TV DMP and really helped us stitch this whole thing together. Like I said, 5 million tests, 5 million control. And uh, kind of we ran it and it was interesting. We could actually sort of track these individuals who had seen the ads to sort of see what their behaviors were. What were some of the results you saw? So I would say, if you think about, it's primarily targeted at riders, so drivers right. saw it also. So you could split the riders into three groups, those that were prospects, i.e. they're not riders yet, but mm-hmm. you know everyone should be an Uber rider at some point. So pretty much everyone's a prospect. <laughs> those who were active and those who had churned. And there was some splitting we did within each of those buckets, but that's, that's basically it. The biggest movement, uh, and then you can think about, okay, we can see sentiment movement and we can see business results movement, mm-hmm. right? And so sentiment movement, we saw a fair amount of sentiment movement in the churned folks, right? And a lot of these were folks who we'd lost due to delete Uber. We also saw some sentiment change in the active group. We saw very little impact on sentiment in the prospects. They're just apparently just not really tuned in to all the drama. Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah. They didn't know they didn't know Uber was bad. They didn't know we'd gotten bad. Like they were like, <laughs> so they're, they're not really listening. They're like, okay, uh, thank you, but no. And what was interesting, though, especially in the churn, we saw pretty good sentiment movement pretty quickly. It was about four months or so before we saw any movement in their actual activity, mm. right? So there was this lag. And, yeah. you know, we, we dug into why that was. And it seemed like, so most of these churned users uh, had not actually stopped using rideshare and they'd basically gone to Lyft. Right. And what it turned out was happening is, so the sentiment changed, great. But they're used to using Lyft right now. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is we started to get them back if they had a problem with Lyft. Oh, you know, they had a really bad ride experience or there was a lot of um, surge pricing, whatever it is. Right. And now instead of continuing to try to use Lyft, they're like, you know what? Maybe Uber isn't that bad after all. Let me reinstall the app or whatever it is. And so that's where we saw the effect. But it was it was four months out. And so it would have been very hard to sort of detect using normal means. Right. I love the approach because it it's rare that you get a clean look at things for a brand campaign like you just described. And it, I've never heard of this use case for um, addressable TV. So that's that's pretty fascinating. It, did it surprise anybody at Uber, like the results you saw? I was curious. So we, we saw the results I just told you about. Yeah. I, I think the folks on the more brand side of sort of the Uber world were a little disappointed that there wasn't more of a movement in the business metrics. Like I said, mm. there was some, right. 
but in terms of if you think of the efficiency of spend right Right. versus the efficiency of spending after we'd cut out the fraud, to be clear, versus the efficiency of spending on performance marketing, kind of it wasn't there. And then the question was like, okay, is there a way that we should value this movement in sentiment beyond the business metrics that we can now track? Mm-hmm. And maybe the answer is yes. For example, you could imagine if we'd had these things in place before, would we have had more of a heat shield when Delete Uber happened, when Susan Fowler happened, when the TK video broke. That's really hard to measure even with addressable TV, right? right so right. I, this doesn't completely solve the, okay, now we've cracked how to measure kind of brand spend. It's just one more step in that right direction. Gotcha, gotcha. We've talked a lot about, I guess, writers to this point. And I know you do probably even more, frankly, more marketing or have done more marketing towards the driver equation. Anything come to mind in terms of lessons learned in terms of trying to drive riders? I mean, it's hard to drive drive drivers. Drive drivers, yeah. yeah. It's very confusing also, like when we talk about the drivers of something, like, right. oh, the drivers of change. Yeah. Drive. Like, no, no, I'm not talking about drivers. I'm talking about the, the drivers. drivers. So, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. We would occasionally use the term uh, driver partners internally just mm-hmm. to sort of help with that. So it was actually, there were a few things. One of them that was very interesting is that, uh, yeah, and, and you're right, drivers was always the bigger challenge. Uh, we were spending in the neighborhood of kind of like th- even pre the fraud reduction, we were probably spending 2x more on drivers, 2 to 3x more. And then post the fraud related reduction, it was you know 5, 6x more on drivers. There was one interesting trade-off, and I can't say we really resolved this. So I was acquiring drivers and looking at sort of a CAC to LTV ratio. And again, these were the heady days of growth. So of course, CAC was higher than LTV. What are you talking about? It was just a debate as to should it be 2X or 3X. And I was spending a decent amount of money doing that. And then there was the driver incentive team, which is the marketplace team, which was sending money on things to say, hey, driver, if you do at least you know 100 trips this week, we'll give you an extra $200 right? So those are the driver incentives. They were spending about, I would say, 3x kind of more than I was. So that's a huge, huge spend. And there was this ongoing debate as to both these spends are doing the same thing. They're creating more supply. And what's the right way to sort of trade these things off? And it was tricky because my goal was CAC to LTV and kind of how efficiently could I sort of get a new driver. And on the incentive team side, their goal was category share, kind of like what portion of the market was us versus Lyft. And they were like, okay, for each extra point for a given week will cost me a million dollars. So it's like, oh, you want to move from 75% of the category to 80%? Okay, well, that'll cost $25 million per week to do. And so we had these different metrics. And how do we trade money between? And the other thing that was interesting is they could turn on spend and sort of get drivers to change their behavior literally that day. If I acquire a driver, they do 500 trips over their two or three year lifetime, right? So I can't. Right. So if we need extra drivers, either because we want to sort of compete more effectively with Lyft or because there's a big surge in ridership happening because there's a big fare happening in a particular city, acquisition doesn't do anything for you, kind of, but incentives can. And so we really kind of struggled with kind of what's the right way to trade this off. And we made some progress. We basically sort of came up with some sort of common metrics to really think about, okay, let's just think about what the cost per incremental trip is for each of these things and use that as a sort of universal language. We were never able to fully resolve the short-term versus long-term, though we did agree that you know marketing for long-term was more efficient than incentives for long-term. So we basically said, oh, marketing should spend more now 
so that incentives can spend less in nine months. Right. And so the marketing budget went up. And in theory, the future incentive budget went down. No one, I mean, I don't know if that actually <laughs> happened when it came three quarters later, right? right. But that was kind of the trade-off. And the other thing that was funny, actually, as I ramble on about this, is if you pay drivers incentives, you're paying them to sort of take extra trips. That impacts the LTV of that driver. So you imagine a driver kind of normally would do 500 trips and I spend however much, you know, a few thousand dollars to acquire them. Mm -hmm. Now I have this incentive spend. Now they do 600 trips, but I just poured another $2,000 of incentives into them. That changes my LTV. So should I account for that? Should I account right. for the expected incentive spend in my LTV, even if it's kind of well above, like, and kind of you had this sort of like circular thing, which also made it tricky. Right, right. No, that's, but I like the, I like the notion of this, like, borrowing from the future. <laughs> in marketing, it's always this trade-off, it seems, between short-term, you know, I want my cake now, versus trying to grow for the long-term in, in a more sustainable way. But I like the jujitsu that you've done <laughs> in this example is to take that cake eating of the future and pull that forward for long-term vegetable benefit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard it done quite that way. It's always, it's always, well, let's drop some more cake on this and eat our way to growth versus the other way around. So that's pretty interesting jujitsu. But the notion of changing the LTV equation through the incentives, you're right. No one does that. Those LTVs tend to be pretty static. You know, right. And not not moving or not thought of in terms of their degradation. Um, if you're Right. Playing. And there's a real question of like, if if how should I account for it? Right. Because let's say we know that we're going to decide to sort of lose money, but just drive a bunch of incremental trips at some point. Maybe then, like all of my acquisition in San Francisco would be unprofitable because we know we're going to incent them. So should I turn off all of acquisition spend in San Francisco? Well, no, that doesn't make sense because then we'll need to even spend more in incentives for the small number of drivers we have. We'll have to pay that smaller group even more, right? So you end up kind of sort of, again going around in circles, which I feel is. <laughs> summarizes my life well <laughs> <laughs> well um it, this has been fascinating i mean it, partly because it's an interesting company at a very interesting time in the midst of all of this you're doing some fantastic like measurement tests experiments and analytics i don't think you could have designed it any other way it probably felt like your hair was on fire during this time i don't know it, it se seems like it would i don't know if you felt that. yeah it was you know again i always try to sort of like kind of be thoughtful about what I'm doing and sort of enjoy the moment. But um, at the time, it just it just felt like, oh, my God, kind of everything happening at once. And, you know, it didn't really feel like we were being very thoughtful and programmatic and structured about it. But, you know, when I and maybe we weren't. You know, when I tell the story to you now, it sounds all well thought out. I, I think there'd probably be some people who are like, Kevin, that's that's what are you talking about? That's not how it happened. It was this crazy hair on fire stumbled into the right answer. But right. hey, you know what? That's how it, that's how it is sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, um, is there anything that you think performance marketers or marketers in general should be doing differently now that we start 2020? I think um, I would not be shy about trying to bring a measurement approach to brand spend. You know, the addressable TV is one way. I, I think you know, bring some of that performance marketing mindset to brand spend. You can't measure it perfectly, and don't hold it to that standard because then you'd end up not doing as much as you should and you definitely should do some. Mm -hmm. But keep pushing yourself to find ways 
to quantify the business impact, not just sentiment impact, but find ways to trace through that business impact um, however you can. And it'll help you sort of figure out like what exactly you're spending on for brand. Mm. And the other thing, like I said above, is just dig into what your agencies are doing. Again, they're not bad people. Right. But, you know, don't be okay with their PowerPoint saying, okay, here's what we spent, here's how it was. Like, take a few data scientists and, like, have them sit with the agencies and just be part of all that data that's coming in and really kind of dig through it. Like, it's right. so, so important. Did you guys, I'm just curious, because you talked about digging through the log files and things like that. Did, did you end up eventually just making that a requirement? I don't know, or, or maybe it already was that they were sharing that data with you, because a lot of times they don't even share the data. Yeah. So now, yes. Yeah, so we kind of rewrote all of our kind of um, kind of insertion orders and things like that. So yes, we kind of required that sort of they share it as sort of a very high level. But the important thing is, it's a lot of information. Right. And wow. we also need to have people on our end who could parse and look through it. Mm-hmm. And we even did other things. Like we basically said that kind of if you give us kind of fraudulent traffic, kind of there's penalties associated with that, not just, oh, make goods. Because the way a lot of these kind of orders are structured, like it's sort of like if you rob a bank, it's like, oh, okay, imagine the police catch you and say, just give the money back. Right. Like there's no incentive <laughs> to keep robbing banks and just hope you'll get away with it eventually. And kind of a lot of these things are structured that way. Oh yeah, if there's fraud, we'll just kind of do a make good. Oh, so what's your incentive to not keep trying? Because there's no real cost to you. Right, right, right. That's a great point. That's a great point. Well, um, I appreciate you spending so much time and talking about all the experiences that you've had at Uber. I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit more just about you as a person. And I love asking this question uh, of everyone that comes on the show, which is, is there an experience of your past that defines and makes up who you are today? Um, I don't know. I guess maybe, you know, in my teenage years, I, you know, our, our family was not particularly well off. We, we, you know, we always had a roof over our heads, but we were not, um, yeah, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. And I remember my parents implemented a point system for our food. Uh, it was my, my parents, myself, and my older brother. And you got a certain point allocation for how much food you could eat. And the point allocation was not based on like Weight Watchers to lose weight. No, uh, <laughs> it was based on sort of the costs. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, so like rice, like was very few points, but sort of like, you know, uh, you know, certain garnishes or things were very expensive point wise. And they actually implemented this. And, you know, at the time, like, you know, when you're a kid, it sort of feels normal because you're like, oh, I I guess that's how it works. But, you know, I I since found out it wasn't. I do remember my brother kept overeating his points and borrowing from future days. I'm like, well, wait a second. Like when, so are you not going to eat as much tomorrow? And it kept going. So he was like on like a month and a half out with his (laughs) borrowed points, which seemed very unfair. But you know what? We were really, really happy. Like I had this like idyllic, happy childhood that I kind of remember. And like, and I look around at kind of some of friends who kind of, you know, had a lot more kind of wealth Yeah, and they were miserable. You know, their parents, you know, were divorced. They they were just like, you know, not paid attention to, they didn't get along with their family. And it just made me realize how kind of, how you don't need kind of money to be happy. Yeah. And that was really nice. Yeah. And it does. I mean, they gamified your food. <laughs> and it, to your point, it's not something you hear about what you just described every day. But I imagine it's a, you know, whether they're assigning points to it or not, but food insecurity is a, a big problem in this country in yeah. particular. Yeah, it so, really is. It um, really is. What, do you, if you don't mind me asking, I, I don't remember if you said earlier, do you, what part of the country did you grow up in? San Diego is where okay. I went to junior high and high school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you had the ocean nearby. So that, 
I did, which is good because the ocean is free. <laughs> right. I was driving to let's see, this was in this is in like mid eighties. I remember I was driving a seventy six Datsun B two ten. It was bright orange. I was going to this <laughs> I was like the poor kid in this rich high school. You know, it was Del Mar, which you know oh, wow. some yeah. people might have heard yeah. of, right? Yeah. And you know, we were living in this like crappy little house. I was driving my 76 Datsun B210 and I was like parking in the parking lot, you know, Mercedes on one side, Porsche on another. And it was just like, man, and of course at the time I was like, Hey mom, can I get a Supra Toyota Supra? Right. I don't think they make those anymore. And then she's like, Nope. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll be happy with my Datsun B210. Bright orange, bright, bright orange. orange. Datsun B210. Yeah. yeah. I think my first car <laughs> for doing this, I had a, a Toyota Tercel. That was a, I think a 1976. So it was, it was older than I was. And then my parents had got it, one, it was cheap, and two, because it was the oldest thing they could possibly find. But yeah, yeah. So it was it was a good car until I wrecked it. I had a a bad bad experience there. But anyway, I digress. Well um what advice, like if you were starting all over, what is there any advice you'd give your younger self? I guess maybe two things. The first, in terms of of jobs, I would be kind of much more focused, not to say I wasn't, but much more focused on the people I'm working with. Mm. You never know if a company is going to be successful or not. I mean, you know, look at WeWork, right? Like a year ago, it was like, you just never know. And Mm. look at other companies that were nothing. And so like, that's really hard to predict. And for any given company, there's always folks that are sure it'll be amazing and sure that'll be terrible, right? And especially from the outside, especially as a young person, you have no idea but what you can get a sense of through the interview process, especially if you like, hey, let's go to lunch type thing, is who are the folks you're going to be spending that you know, 50, 60 hours a week with? Because mm. that's just so important in terms of you just liking them, in terms of you thinking they're good people, kind of ethical and all that stuff. So you know, kind of really focusing on that would be the one thing. The second thing on, on a sort of you know, much more personal note, like I have like uh, an amazing wife and two kids now. Uh, the, the latest one just showed up three months ago. Yeah. And I really love that. And I, I do occasionally get sad that I, you know, started that so late. And I, I think it's it's weird to tell my former self like, hey, start a family earlier. But I think, you know, that's a real huge source of happiness that I, I didn't have until recently. And I really wish I'd sort of done that earlier. No, it's, I, I think that's great advice. What drives you? What What keeps you going these days? I think globally, I really... I really focus on enjoying my day. I think it's easy kind of to get in this trap of sort of thinking every as every day is an investment to some future day, whether that's a near-term thing like, you know, I don't like what I'm doing right now, but there's going to be this great vacation in three months. Right. Or I don't really like this job, but it's a great career move for the next job. Or actually, I don't like these this job, the next job, or the next job after that. But if I play this right, I'll get to retire. And, and by the time you're done with all this, you're like, okay, I haven't enjoyed anything, but like tomorrow is going to be better. And it's like, you know what? Focus on making sure you're enjoying right now. And honestly, maybe I'd be further along in my career if I'd been more future thinking. I, I think there's a case to be made for that, but I've really tried to enjoy kind of the moment and really focus on that. And that's, that's a pretty big guide for kind of what I do. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great advice. And I, you can live a much more rich fulfilling life thinking about the world that way so i applaud your efforts i I need to do better at that myself well two more kind of marketing questions for you um or businessy questions i think most people tend to kind of watch what's going on around them other brands companies causes even is there anything that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of 
I do have a, a bit of a passion, uh, partly because of Uber, for two-sided markets. Mm. So I spend a lot of time thinking about watching them, talking to friends about them. And one aspect is like, what sort of, whether you want to call them industries or business problems, are best solved by a sort of a kind of two-sided networked market mm-hmm. versus kind of the old way of doing it, right? Like, what right. are the conditions that need to be true for that? Um, and then also related, like, the legislations around, like, AB5 in California yeah. impacting gig economy workers and kind of what that will mean for this market. The first thing it's mean is, like, my Uber loyalty program just got way less interesting to me. I got a very sad email on uh, a few days ago saying that my surge protection just went away. But aside from that, <laughs> um, yeah, so the two-sided markets I find really, really interesting Another industry I watch is sort of the augmented reality one. And look, I think, and maybe I'm just getting older, right? Because I think technology will be bad. It's going to bring amazing things um, and benefits. But I, I worry that it can create sort of that social isolation, you know, 20 years from now, when there's less and less of reason to ever get off your couch because you don't need to go, you don't need to go to work. That's great. You saved your commute. You don't have that interaction with people. It's like, oh, happy hours. You don't actually go out anymore. You just all meet at some virtual bar, right? And you're all in your living room. And like, what will that do to our society, right? And I, I don't know, again, I feel like I'm getting older for worrying about these things, but I, I, I sometimes ponder the impact that will have. I don't know what cartoon it was, but there was some cartoon that I'm envisioning in my head of these like plumpy people being carted around in their autonomous uh, beds <laughs> because right? they don't need to. It know. sounds like South Park. I don't know if it is, but it sure sounds like it, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not a pretty sight. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but um, well, last question for you. What do you think the future of marketing is going to look like? Yeah, I think there'll be an increasing sort of tech and automation driving decisions on the performance marketing side. I think more and more there'll be sort of people setting the strategy and then kind of tweaking and monitoring, but not actually sort of building the campaigns. It'll be mm-hmm. more like, hey, let me throw a bunch of kind of here's what my high LTV customers look like. Here's a bunch of creative assets that are all disjointed. And I'm just going to put it into a big system. And here's kind of how much I'm willing to spend and how I value things. And you're just going to throw all this into some massive machine. Mm. And it will sort of run campaigns. It'll pick what channels to do. It'll pick what to show and things like that. I think they're going to be sort of increasing movement kind of around that. So I'll put more of a premium on kind of having sort of that technical knowledge and some of the analytic stuff as opposed to the more nuanced things that even come with performance marketing side i do think that will do less than be less than helpful for resolving sort of the the ever-present tensions between sort of the brand and the performance side Mm. because i think that means the performance side will even get more and more technical and yeah whatever customers i don't really care whatever that is like right right? and so i think it'll it'll pull those two things apart further and, and not really help in that kind of ongoing dynamic Mm. well kevin it's been fascinating and i can't thank you enough for coming on the show all right well thank you so much i enjoyed it as well hi it's alan again marketing today was created and produced by me if you're new to marketing today please feel free to write us a review on itunes or your favorite listening platform don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show i love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.